We've been going through the book of Revelation for uh, quite some time now. And chapter 11 has been difficult uh, for me as a pastor because, man, there's some stuff in there that is just downright confusing. Uh, if you were uh, here last week, man, there, it, it was just thick. There's a lot in there, but you know... There's some parts of it that aren't confusing. Uh, How many of y'all have seen over the last several weeks what seems to be an uptick in people just hating? Turned on your news and you see uh, folks getting shot in Philadelphia. You see folks getting shot in Dayton. Uh, you see folks getting shot in El Paso. And it, it, every, every single one of them was, was different. Had different motivations. Every single attack um, had different motivations. Um, reading some of the things that the different shooters said, uh, it, it was chilling uh, to hear their reasoning for attacking uh the guy in uh, the the one in el paso was racially motivated the one in dayton was politically motivated and in pennsylvania um it seemed like what motivated that was particularly a drug bust but what shocked me was the video of the cops are out there trying to tend to their wounded and they're in this standoff with this guy inside that's shooting out the cops. And folks in the neighborhood are heckling the cops while they're doing this. And they're proud of it. And I sit here and I wonder, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where my greatest fear in seeing an incident like this is not... I'm afraid that somebody is going to see it and be inspired by it. Does that make sense? That we live in a world with a bunch of hate, y'all. And it seems like it gets worse every single day. Okay, I'm not, I hope y'all know me well enough to know now, y'all, that I'm, I'm not a political preacher. I'm not up here talking about legal ramifications of what hate speech is and what hate speech isn't. I'm not trying to wade into that. But I do think that as Christians, we should be open and honest about the fact that, that the human race is a hateful one. That we are predisposed toward hate. You say, well, I don't know that I'm a hateful person. Well, sure you are. All of us are. And it might not be being expressed in your life right now, but I promise you, because of what happened in Genesis 3, hate lives in your heart. It lives in my heart. It lives in every single person under the sound of my verse's heart. What is it that keeps the hate 
in us from bubbling over and taking over the world. It is the restraint, the merciful restraint of God Almighty keeping it from happening. That is the only thing that is keeping humanity from destroying itself. Is that God restrains us. But what we're going to see in this passage today is two things. One, we're going to see the predisposition every single one of us has hiding in our heart toward hate because we're going to see where the human race is headed. We're going to see where we're going. And then two, we're going to see that that God's not going to let that go on forever. And hopefully you'll see that there is a way out of this hate spiral. This feedback loop. And that is the grace of God given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. That you can defeat not just hatred out there, but hatred in here. You can wash that away with the blood of Jesus. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 through 14. Verses 7 through 14. When they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them Make merry and send gifts to one another, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. The earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Father, I pray that you would help this church to be a people who are known for our love and not for our hate. And Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit see that we have the predisposition in our heart to hate because of the fall, but that you can repress that and eliminate that in us by the working of your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you can be seated. So, well, Josh, it just sounds like you have a negative view of humanity. I do. I do. Well, that's not encouraging. That's not very positive. Well, no, it's not. But, y'all, the Bible is very, very, very clear that humanity has its worth because we are made in the image of God. But way, 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 way back. At the beginning of the book, in chapter 3, that image of God, that goodness, got distorted by something called the fall. And when we did that, we're not going to flip back there, but feel free to go back and read Genesis chapter 3 this afternoon. That's your homework. So you can see where this is coming from. Yep, school's back. You have homework already. Uh, Go back and read Genesis chapter 3 and look at what happens. Adam and Eve sin. And God goes and confronts Adam. Adam, you know, they're hiding from God. They've eaten the fruit. The very last thing you see in chapter 2 is 
the man and his wife were naked, they were not ashamed. Now let's not focus on the naked part, let's focus on the not ashamed part. They had no reason to be afraid of standing in front of God. They were pure, they were holy, they were good. They had no reason to hide anything, much less themselves. After they sin in chapter 3, they instantly go hide. When God's walking around in the bushes, and God's walking around in the garden, He says, Adam! Adam! Yes, Lord? Why are you in a bush? Well, we were naked, and we didn't want to come in front of you that way. Who told you that, Adam? Now, is God asking a question because He doesn't know the answer? No. He's making a point. Who told you that, Adam? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree that I didn't command you? Adam's answer is very interesting. That woman that you gave me, she did this, and then she gave me the fruit, and I ate. It's her fault. Now, a chapter ago, he sang the world's first love song. Surely this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first Christian pickup line was born. Hey, I'm missing a rib. Are you it? And this loving, kind, perfect, whole relationship is now, she did it. You talk to her. It's her fault. It's not my, I'm a victim. Eve, snake did it. I was deceived. He lied to me. He's a talking snake. What did you think he was going to do? There's, there's no more harmony anymore. Adam and Eve are no longer getting along. Now we know that the serpent, we know that the serpent is, is not just a snake, don't we? He's not just an animal. But the snake is, the snake itself is an animal. You know who else there was supposed to be harmony between? Adam and creation. That harmony is destroyed. And as you go on through Scripture, man gets more and more and more hateful and more and more and more violent. Where is it headed? Toward Revelation chapter 11. This is humanity at its lowest point. Now it says, when the witnesses... Now who are these two guys? If you go back to the beginning of chapter 11, the temple's been rebuilt in Jerusalem and folks are streaming into the temple to worship there for the first time in a couple thousand years. But so they don't get confused... God drops these two witnesses right smack in the middle of the city of Jerusalem who preach the gospel for three and a half years. And if anybody gets mad at them and tries to stop them because they don't like to hear the gospel, if you try and stop them, Scripture outlines in very brutal colors what happens to you. If you try and stop them from speaking, it says fire comes out of their mouth and consumes anyone who tries to stop them. And if you try and threaten them, they have the power to turn water to blood, to close the sky so that it doesn't rain while they prophesy, and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they wish. 
Now these guys, they, they don't play around. <clears throat> okay, so that's these two. When they finish their testimony in verse 7, so they're done, okay? We've already read, I'm not spoiling anything, they're about to get killed. I do want you to note that they don't get killed before accomplishing the mission that God gave them. This is not God taking a loss at the hand of the demonic. Okay, They've done everything God intended them to do. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, this is the first time the word beast is used in the book of Revelation. Uh, you're going to see the beast, the word beast again in Revelation 13. It typically refers to the Antichrist, this character. But we've already heard the bottomless pit mentioned too, haven't we? Okay? What comes out of the bottomless pit? Demons. So if the beast is the Antichrist, it's a person. So he couldn't have come out of the bottomless pit. If the beast is the angel then he could have come out of a bottomless pit, or the demon rather. He could have come out. Whether or not this is the Antichrist or whether or not this is the, de- the, the demonic leader of the army from the, the bottomless pit doesn't seem to matter to me. I'm not going to spend time trying to figure out which it is. What's important though is that John uses the word beast. Now there are two words in Greek you can use for animals or living creatures. You can use the word zoe, which means life. Yes, it does. Zoon. It's, that's why when you go to see animals, where do, you, where do you go? You go to the zoo. That's from the Greek word zoe. It means life. It can mean living, living things. Or you can use the word therion. Now, they both mean living creatures, but the word therion is the word that we translate beast. This is what the New American uh, Commentary says on this. Therion is a word for a beast of prey, one with a ravenous appetite, a carnivore like a lion or panther. It connotes a cunning of unreasoning violence that acts according to its own cruel nature. It differs from a zoon, a living creature, which usually refers to animals also, but lacks the rapacious connotations. This is not just an animal. This is a senselessly violent, brutal creature. Fueled by anger, fueled by hate, unreasoning violence. Whether it's the leader of the demonic army which could be angelic or could be a person led by a demon, or whether it's the Antichrist, the beast himself. The way he behaves towards these witnesses is why John uses this word beast. There is no mercy. There is no love. There is no care. There is no, reason, there is no reasonable debate. It is pure, senseless violence. And some commentators say that, oh, well, this, these witnesses must be figurative because who makes war against just two people? Have you seen these two people? This guy must, whoever it is, he musters everything that can be put together to visit as much violence on these two as he possibly can. 
and God allows him to kill them. Why? Because their, their, their task is over. God, is, God allows him to kill them. Now, <clears throat> listen to what, what Scripture says next. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Identifying this great city would be difficult if John had only given us its spiritual name. What does he mean by that? I think he's, he, he's talking figuratively. And he mentions Sodom and Egypt. But he also tells us Jesus was crucified in the city. Uh, church, what city was Jesus crucified in? Jerusalem. So they, they get killed in the city where they're doing their ministry. And the people are so happy they're dead, they don't even bury them. They leave their bodies laying in the street so they can clap when they walk by. Now y'all, I, I wouldn't let my worst enemy lay unburied on the side of the road. That's just shameful. But is there any shame here? No. No, it's, it's pure hate. But why does John call this city Sodom and Egypt? I want you to consider the history of those two locations. Specifically two incidents in their history. L listen to Sodom. This is, from, this is not on your handout yet. This is from Genesis 19, verses 6 and 7. So Lot, went out, so Lot has moved into the city of Sodom. Uh, so this, is like moving to, this is like moving to Atlanta for business prospects. Big city, economic hub. Great city of the ancient world. Lot moves in there because he thinks, man, this would be a great safe place to raise a family and do business. Moves to Sodom. I'm not calling Atlanta Sodom. Maybe a little. So Lot went out to them. He's got two guests that have come to his house. And they say, hey Lot, we came to visit you, but we're going to spend the night in the open square. And Lot says, no, 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 no. You are not spending the night out in the open square. You need to stay in my house tonight so you'll be safe. And in the middle of the night, all the men of the town come to him and say, hey, you got two visitors in your house. We want to send you out. We want you to send them out here to us. And most of y'all have read your Bibles, you know why. If you don't, I'm just going to tell you to go back and read Genesis 19. Doesn't take long to figure out why. Send them out here. And so in verses 6 and 7, Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. You've got a man of God pleading with the people in this wicked city. Please don't do this. Don't go this far. Do not exercise your baser, hateful instincts. Do not perpetrate violence on these men. Please restrain yourselves. Genesis 19, 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, Lot, and he keeps acting as a judge. He's telling us what we should and shouldn't do. Now we'll deal worse with you than them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. The man of God begged them to restrain themselves, and they did not listen. What happened to Sodom? 
Can you find it on a map? No, it's gone. Now, what about Egypt? What was Charlton Heston's famous line? He stood in front of Pharaoh. Let my people go! Everybody knows this. You know, the most glorious beard in the history of cinema goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. I'm not Charlton. That they might hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Verses 6-9 through in the same chapter. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. The man of God pleads with the Pharaoh, Please, restrain yourself, end this violence, end this hatred, and let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, No. I'll make it worse. Because I'll show you who's in charge. I don't know your God. See, in Egypt, Pharaoh thought he was a God. The Pharaoh that died before him was the reigning Osiris. The one who controlled the door into the afterlife. He was the God of the afterlife. And then whenever he he would die, he would take his father's place as Osiris. And his dad would retire. For an eternity in the Egyptian afterlife. Pharaoh thought he was a god. So when Moses came to him and said, Thus says the Lord God. Pharaoh says, I don't know him. The only god in this room is me. And I'll show you how this works. You come in here and tell me that I need to let these lazy ragamuffin Israelites go. I'll show you how that happens when you compete with God. I'll make things worse on them. And God said, you want to see who can make things worse? You want to know where Pharaoh is now? It's at the bottom of the Red Sea with his entire army. In both cases, a man of God went and said, Please stop. Please cease this violence. Please do not indulge the hate that is in your heart. And in both cases, those places plugged their ears and said, No, 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 no. I do not know this God. I do not want this God. And I will unleash everything I have on you to get you to silence yourself, to be quiet, to go away and let me have my way. Well, what about Jerusalem? Who's the most high-profile man of God that begged God's people to listen to Him for their own good? Who's the most high-profile one who's ever come through the city of Jerusalem to do that? 
Jesus. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So consumed with me, 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 my, 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 my rights, my authority, my word, my power, my kingdom, my dreams. I do not know the Lord God, nor will I let Him rule. Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus was the crucifixion, the epitome of violence and hatred. But leaving their dead bodies on the street wasn't the only way they hated them. Then, those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. It's not just the people in Jerusalem who see their dead bodies. Now, this would have blown John's mind when he was writing Revelation because in the year 90 A.D., it would have taken months for a message to get across the world. How in the world would the entire nation, the entire world, in three and a half days, all not just hear about their dead bodies, but see them? Are any of you confused about how that might happen today? Man, I can pull out my phone. If I had reception in here, I could pull out my phone and tell you what's going on in Paris. I could pull out my phone and tell you what's going around or what's going on in Saudi Arabia. I could pull out my phone and tell you what's going on in Australia. Take me two seconds. And I couldn't just tell you, I could show you pictures. I could tell you whether it's raining, I could tell you the temperature, I could show you live pictures of the African Serengeti. You can, you, the whole world is in your pocket. Any of y'all got Facebook? Man, can you imagine what if Facebook's still around that day? Which, honestly, I, I think Facebook's kind of like a cockroach. I don't think a nuclear bomb would kill Facebook at this point. Can you imagine what Facebook's going to look like? People create a little event, invite all their friends to it, celebrate the death of those two idiots that we were tired of hearing, sharing pictures, Liking pictures of their dead bodies laying on the side of the road, because that's what John says happens. Is that they send that, that those who dwell verse ten, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. It'll be like Christmas. See, in the church, we have a holiday because of a birth. In Revelation eleven, they have holiday because of murder. Y'all, humanity is going down the tubes as fast as it can. We're headed there. When you go, Josh, that seems extreme, does it? Watch TV. What do you see more of? Love or hate? Read Facebook. What do you see more of? Love or hate? Twitter. Love or hate? Y'all, it seems like we are just, we have an ability to find a way to hate somebody and be offended by them. 
Humanity is not basically good. We're predisposed toward evil. And not just any evil, the greatest evil. We are predisposed toward hatred of God. This is on your handout. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So, so start, start with that. What begins this downward slide? Not liking to retain God in our knowledge. That we actively work to forget Him. Or maybe I should say, if you actively work to put Him out, to forget Him. This is what happens. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That once you begin trying to remove God from your life, from your household, from your town, from your state, from your society, from your country, from your world of social media. Once you take Him out, it's a slippery slope, y'all. Have you ever once thought of saying something or doing something and the only reason you didn't do it was because you said, they know I'm a Christian. That's not a bad thing. They, 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 the, the apostles used that over and over and over in the New Testament. We were reading Titus this morning. Where, where Paul tells Titus, you need to teach people to adorn the doctrine. That the way we live should make Christianity look good. So when we're getting ready to do something wicked, the Holy Spirit checks in our heart and says, Oh, if you do that, that's going to make me look bad. And you go, I really want to give them a piece of my mind, but that's going to make God look bad. Y'all, what happens when, when nobody cares about whether or not it makes a God they don't believe in look bad. What happens when people believe there's no one to judge them? What happens when people believe there's no standard, it's just what I want and what I can get away with? So, the bad news and then the good news. The bad news is there's not a thing in the world we can stop humanity from going down this road. There's not a thing you can do. Humanity's going to go there. Unless you can contact Jesus via the red phone and tell Him to change Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 through 14, y'all, we're going there. And that ain't happening. His words will never pass away. We're headed there. That's the bad news. The good news is, What we can do is live in such a way that we make a compelling case that listening to God's Word is better than ignoring it and hating His messengers, even if we end up like the two witnesses. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Y'all, the world is full of hate, but the church shouldn't be. If anybody had a reason to hate somebody... 
Jesus could have hated us. He created us to glorify Him and we spit in His face. He came down here to save us and we murdered Him. He came to His own and His own received Him not. John 1. But did Jesus hate us? You know what Jesus did for you? He loved you into the kingdom. He, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do you into the kingdom. He bled you into the kingdom with His own body. And the whole time He was dying, He was being mocked. Oh, if He's the Son of God, let Him come down. Let Him show it. Gambling away His clothes. He could have called down lightning bolts tailor-made for every single one of them. Did He? No. Church, the, the, the application's not all that crazy. Y'all just love people, please. Love each other. And the best way you can love somebody is you can share the gospel with them. You can speak to them kindly. You can sacrifice yourself for them. You want to know one of the best ways we can combat hate in the world? Sometimes by keeping our mouths shut. Because the fact of the matter is, until glory, that little predisposition toward hate still lives in our hearts. You ever seen somebody say something on Facebook and you just get the urge to respond? I can't believe they said that. I'm just... feel better now. Y'all, I think social media is the biggest waste of time in the world. I do. I think it's a net evil. I don't think really there's anything good about it. Before I got rid of mine, I had like 700 Facebook friends. When I deleted it, do you know how many of them called me to wonder where I was? Like six. The rest of them didn't even know I was gone. They're not really your friends. What it really is, is it's an outlet for you to see things that make you mad and either block the people that make you mad or yell at them with zero oversight. That's what it's good for. John Piper said one of the great uses of social media on the Day of Judgment will be for God to prove to us that our prayerlessness was not for lack of time. That... It's an outlet for us to just be mean to people. Do you know that just about every person who has committed a shooting in the last two months posted about it and was encouraged by other people on social media? They were encouraged. It's a feedback loop of hate. Isaiah 53, 7. Listen to how Jesus handled hate directed toward Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Y'all, you don't have to engage. You can overcome evil with good. The, you, the Holy Spirit in you, get, you ought to make a case by the way you speak, the way you live, the way you treat people, that Jesus is just flat better than life without Him. You ought to be able to make that case and not be ashamed of it. Oh, well, the world just gets me down. I just, you know, study after study after study after study has shown that there is a direct correlation between the amount of time that people spend on things like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and depression. The more time they spend, the more likely they are to be clinically depressed. I'm just so down about the world. Everybody's so mean, and nobody likes me. Well, how do you know nobody likes you? They don't click like. And. Why are you so happy? Well, because I care more about what Jesus thinks than what other people think. And because God was good to me, so why would I be mean and hateful to somebody else? Because Jesus loved me, so why would I not love somebody else? That Jesus sacrificed Himself for me, so why would I not be willing to take a few on the chin so that I can love people so that they would hear the gospel about Jesus? Y'all just be different. Be different. Hatred lives in our hearts, but the Holy Spirit's enough to combat it. And He can use a different life in you to lead people to Jesus. So first, uh, humanity is predisposed toward hatred. And second, uh, I do want us to see that God's not going to allow that hatred of Him to continue forever. In verse 11, John says, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah, those two Greek words together are two words that you actually know in English. Uh, the, the word great is the word megas. Now, what does megas mean? It means mega. When you go to McDonald's, that's what you tell them you want your drink to be, so they give you the big one. You know, biggie is just the English translation of the Greek word megas. You know, you want the, 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 the mega-sized. And the word fear is the word phobos. Where do we use the word phobos? Phobia. It's a, a, a phobia strikes them. A massive fear. I have a phobia of surprise bugs. What do I mean by surprise bugs? I mean, if, the, if, 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 the, if I know the roach is there, it doesn't scare me. But if the roach pops out and I didn't know it was there, that's a whole different animal. This is because as a child I was reading a book in my living room and it got hot and I turned the ceiling fan on and there was a roach that was on top of one of the fan blades. And when I turned it on, it flung the roach into my face and fell on me in the chair, and I fell out of the chair, the chair fell over, I lost my place in the book, and I almost hyperventilated, and I've never been the same. Okay, surprise bugs, I have a phobia of them, they scare me. Okay, I just, I can't. And if you've got a phobia of something, it's not just the kind of thing where it's like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, I ain't going in there. I'm not doing it. 
But there's a problem with this. When God wants you to see something, you don't get to just block it out. You don't get to just make it go away. And the whole earth that saw them die also sees them rise. The TV cameras probably haven't even turned off. Could you imagine the TV cameras one day trained on a body that's been dead for three and a half days and everybody's clicking like and sharing and sending gifts and then you see, you see that chest rise. And then you see that arm push himself up and they brush themselves and they stand off and they're in perfect health. That, that would upset you, wouldn't it? And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. This is fairly straightforward. God raised His men from the dead in the sight of their enemies. And the terrified onlookers could do nothing but watch as God rewarded them by calling the resurrected witnesses into heaven. That's it. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tent of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now the New American Commentary points out uh, two oddities about this particular set of verses. In the first, where it says 7,000 people were killed, there's actually a word in Greek that didn't make it into English because the translators didn't know what to do with it. And it's the word onomata. Now in Greek, it's onomata anthropos. Or anthropon. Now, you know what the word anthropon means because you study anthropology, right? That's the study of people. Study of men. But what does the word onomata mean? It means name. So it says the names of 7,000 people perished. Now, translators don't know what to do with that, so that's why you just get people. But Paige Patterson, the New American Commentary, says, while interpreters can't be certain what to make of this unusual expression, the fact that the terminology names of men is employed seems to suggest that the people who lost their lives in the earthquake are known and perhaps even particularly significant. So it's not just 7,000 random people who died. It's 7,000 specific people who died. It's not just like if you were accidentally in this spot, you died that day. That a specific tenth of the city fell and a specific 7,000 people died. God targeted them. Well, what in the world does that mean? Is it possible that these two oddities are linked? Your pastor thinks so. Because it reminds me of another particular situation in Israel's history. Remember, this is all dealing with Israel right now in chapter 11. The whole world sees it, but this is, this is, an, this is an Israelite issue. Numbers chapter 16, verses 28 through 34. There's this man named Korah. And if you've ever read the book of Numbers, which by the way, Numbers is an action book. It's not a book about numbers. Lots of stuff happens in that book. It's a great read. There's this guy named Korah. And he's got some buddies named Dathan and Abiram. And they're out in the wilderness. And they're upset that Moses and Aaron, they think, have a monopoly on serving God in the temple. So they come to Moses 
And they say, who do you think you are? Aren't all of us holy? Aren't all of us God's people? You take too much authority on yourselves. We're going to go in and we're going to do this too. We're going to serve in the temple. We're going to lead these people. I don't know who you think you are, but all of us are equally qualified before God. Verse 28 in chapter 16, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, now Moses is talking to the rest of the assembly, if these men die naturally like all men, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, in other words, if He does something like He's never done before, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry just like I would have done for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. Why did God do that? He did that so that folks would know who spoke for him and who did not. What have the witnesses been doing for three and a half years? Speaking for him. And the fact that Scripture says anyone who tries to stop them means that there were people who wanted to stop them. Why is it that the second oddity in this passage... This is the only passage in Revelation where the judgment of God actually leads to people being converted, by the way. Everywhere else, when bad things happen, nobody gets gets saved. Nobody gets changed. They all just continue what they're doing. But for some reason in this passage, they give glory to God. Why? Might it be that these 7,000 people in this tenth of the city were arguing with the witnesses? about who was actually right? What makes them think they're right? Why do they get to say this is what God wants? Why do they get to say this is how you should behave? Aren't we all God's children? Why do you need to listen to them? we got this brand new temple that we just built. We can worship there. We haven't had a temple in 2,000 years. And they're telling you to worship Jesus? Where is Jesus in all this? Why is all this stuff happening to us? If He had... God clarifies real quick right then who speaks for Him and who doesn't. And as soon as those 7,000 names of people, those 7,000 specific people, and the city around them falls in, just like Korah. Everybody goes, lest we be swallowed up also, let's follow these guys. And revival breaks out in Jerusalem. That's what happened. That's what I think. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? And then, and very briefly, and then we'll be done. 
Malachi 4, 1-3 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. And you shall grow out, and this verse was about me, right, Jimmy Williams? You shall grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. God promised long a day, long ago, that the day was coming when the proud, the wicked, the hateful, the violent, the evil would be nothing but ashes under the feet of the righteous. Now, y'all, I'm not saying that because I'm excited about the destruction of the wicked. God's not either. Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? I want them to live. I want the wicked to turn. I want the proud to repent. I want people to come to Jesus and be saved. But the reminder is that you don't have forever to do it. The day is coming, burning like an oven. Where the wicked, the proud, those who reject Christ will be like stubble. Some of y'all in here have some have beards and mustaches, and your pastor can't grow one, and so he is unrighteously envious of you. But when you shave and you got that 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 just baby's bottom smooth cheek. Fellas, and you feel you proud of it. You got a you got a close shave, and you start the day feeling all confident. Look at me, I'm all clean shaven. About four o'clock in the afternoon, you reach up, put your hand on your face, and you feel what? There's not much there. Just enough to know that there was something there at one point. One day, that's what the hateful are going to be like. God says the day is coming. I don't want you to be the stubble. I want you to put your hate down, to put your violence down, to put your meanness down and come to Jesus. Joyce is about to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation here. And there's an invitation for two groups of people in here today. Those who are lost, your invitation is to come to Jesus and be saved. And have a reason to be loving rather than be hateful. To have that hate pushed out of your heart day by day until it won't be there in the presence of Jesus anymore. For you as Christian, do you recognize hate in your heart towards someone, towards some group of people? If you see that there, that is unlike your Lord Jesus Christ. It is sinful and it needs to be gone. Whether it's family, whether it's political party, whether it's race, whether it's nationality, whether it's a language, if you hate somebody like that, that is unchristlike. It is sinful. It is not just a personality quirk. The Holy Spirit needs to get it out of you, and He needs to get it out of you now. Because it can fester, and it can grow, and it cannot adorn the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can make God look bad. The Holy Spirit can take that out of you and go confess it to him with sin and say, Jesus, fix me. Sanctify me. Make me look more like you in this way today. I'm going to pray. If you've got questions about either of those, knowing Christ or having the Holy Spirit free you from sin, 
you come talk to me. You fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin if, if walking down the aisle makes you nervous or catching me at the back door. But don't leave. The Holy Spirit is, is working on you, okay? I'm going to pray if you need to come, you come. Father, thank you for today. Oh, Lord, thank you that.